Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Good evening everyone. I hope you're having a fabulous week. So, bit of an update from me. Those of you who follow me on social media will see that last week I was out a little bit with some Achilles tendinosis. I am happy to report that after a bit of massage and stretching and crossing my fingers, the Achilles is now behaving itself and we did an awesome run in the weekend at Hanua's uh, run hike really. And more importantly though, which I was super stoked about in addition to my Achilles, is just that my whole mental game is on for these next events that I've got coming up. So usually at about this time I start talking myself out of them, but I did not throw my toys at all during that five hours, which was amazing and really really enjoyed it and then backed it up with a, an easy run in Riverhead the next day in addition to the body re- responding well to the training and I took the entire week off running I also wasn't overly worried about that because if you listen to me on Fitter Radio with Bev he talks a lot about the uh, kind of utilizing cross training if you can't do your primary activity and just the science behind why that's useful I didn't go crazy though or do any ridiculous length amount of time on on any sort of uh, cardio equipment just because we'd had a couple of weeks of decent running which was probably why my Achilles was playing up anyway. So um, pretty stoked with that. And the other update is we have now got live on my subscriber site recipe only access to over 600 different recipes. Uh, my weekly emails, you get access to pick my brain on any of your nutritional queries. It's a monthly payment of just 12 New Zealand dollars a month, so it's not overly expensive. And it's a great way to get some meal inspiration. 99% of the recipes also have macronutrient counts for people who are interested in tracking their macros and also for people who want to support the podcast. I guess this is a little bit like Patreon, where for 12 bucks a month, you get all of the benefits that I just described. Of course, if you do want a meal plan, I have my monthly meal plans that include all of what I've just described, plus a 28-day meal plan for real food nutrition or athlete meal plan. I also have my fat loss plans available, flow and the man plan. I have the keto longevity plan for an isolated science-backed five-day keto longevity approach. And spring edition of Monday's Matter is about to be released also. So there's a bunch going on on my website. I just thought that I'd mention it at the top of the podcast. So you're in the know. And this week on the podcast, we have the second part of my interview with Dr. Andrew Koopnik. Now, for those of you who obviously listened last week, you'll know about Andrew. He has type 1 diabetes. He was diagnosed as an adult. And in addition to his own studies on nutrition, exercise and metabolism, he's done a huge amount of research looking at low carbohydrate diets and their efficacy for type 1 diabetes. And in addition to that, he's got his TED talk on the subject. He's also written a a bunch of papers on the topic and we just carry on our conversation from last week uh, in this week's podcast so if you missed last week's podcast I encourage you to 
to push pause, go back one week and take a listen to part one. And just FYI, Andrew can be reached at andrewkoutnick.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-K-O-U-T-N-I-K.com. And he's got a whole heap of research in and around type 1 diabetes and low carbohydrate approach there on his personal website. And you can also find information for him at the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition where he works as a research scientist. So without delay, here's the part two of my conversation with Dr. Andrew Kutnick. I know you've done this approach for like low carb and type my beast for like 10 years. You know anyone else who does? And I'm like, no, I've literally like never met a single person my entire life who's done this. Uh, actually, I'd say like one person, the one person who first I talked to about it when I was first going there. So essentially one person, uh, but in essence, no one else. And she's like, well, there was this person presenting this conference and they like are part of this whole community who does this. Um, I want me to connect you with them. I was like, yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. You know, I've, I've never known this to be a thing. And that happened to be type one grip. Mm. So I find out about the group, um, get introduced to them and I join the group. And when the first 24 hours, as I'm looking through the group, I'm realizing, holy smokes, man, these kids in this group, like the kids in this group mm. were achieving glycemic control. I had never seen in my own life. Yeah. Um, like unbelievable levels of control. Uh, adults, kids, people from all walks of life, living in all parts of the country, were showing, you know, HbA1c values, you know, less than 5.7. Yeah. And a lot were less than five, you know, just incredible numbers. Yeah. Um, at that point in my life, I had never been above six, uh, except for my when I was initially diagnosed. So I'd always had pretty good management. Um, and I had a 5.6 before, et cetera. And, you know, I felt pretty good about that. When I started, I was like, man, like, they're achieving some unbelievable, you know, numbers here. You know, this is incredible. It's super motivating. That really, I had gotten introduced to that group. Mm. And when I saw that, it honestly quite literally changed my life because it made me immediately realize, whoa, you know, I bought, you know, there's a lot of times that I thought, you know, it'd be great to speak about this journey that I went through as a type one diabetic. But the truth was, I was always very hesitant to do that because it's, it's one thing to say, yeah, it worked for me. Yeah. But to say it worked for me, so it's going to work for you is dangerous. Really, it really is. Um, but then I'm seeing hundreds of people. Like a post goes up 24 hours later, there's 100 people showing their numbers. Like, yeah, you know, I, you know, maybe someone's faking that, but all of them? No way. And uh, my own personal journey made me realize like, it's totally possible. And it just built around this uh, awareness that, wow, like this is really an opportunity for a lot of people to to implement a strategy that literally was achieving results that no other therapy right now gives a patient with my diagnosis that opportunity to get normal glycemia um, through managing. It's amazing, Andrew. I know I, I think I came across type one grit maybe about five or six years ago or something like that. Just like your colleague, Angela, I went to a conference and heard about the group and as a clinician like I know that the, it's a close community but as a clinician who is an advocate for lower carb just wanted to learn a bit more I'm pretty sure they let me in the group and it was amazing to see how committed these kids were because like you say like particularly children you know if I think about how people manage their health conditions and what drives and motivates them sometimes it's easier to be driven and motivated when you've got um, the very real consequences of not right there and you can see them but 
kids don't see that. Yeah, I mean, typically not, right? And and the thing I've grown to appreciate, you know, and a lot of that's, you know, let's say you get your kid and you walk into the hospital. I was 16 going on 17. So I was at a point where when this came on board, I had very, I had support from my parents, obviously. I was very lucky to have that. Some people don't. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, it very quickly became my own journey. Yeah. Uh, almost like right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And when you're, you know, very young and a kid, you, this falls on your sh parents' shoulders. And I know a lot of parents who were managing their children uh, through other approaches and just felt overwhelmed. I mean, it's usually what ends up happening is parent because this is not a part of the traditional approach, not a, not even close. So, you know, for someone to find this, usually it's because they're like, I'm so overwhelmed. There's got to be something. Like, yeah. is there nothing else? Like, going up to this number, coming down to this number on a regular basis, just seeing their emotions fluctuate and change and they have less control over that. Um, so the, the parents feel the full brunt of that. Mm. And of course, they put a lot of weight on their own shoulders as parents. I mean, I'm a parent now of 22-month-old and I fully understand that. If my son got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which he has a way higher risk because I do compared yeah. to the general population, you know, I feel much more empowered, but a lot of parents, you know, you it's on you like you yeah. know that they're not all the way there and capable of doing this you have to kind of guide them through that until they get older and more established and on their own and you know so a lot of this comes on to is the parent willing to go on this journey yeah because you know there's the the one fear often the one fear parents when they go on this is well i can't eat the food that all of my friends are eating or i can't do this or i can't do that and really truly that that might have been a real legitimate concern at one point but if you do some objective analysis, we actually did this when we were going about writing a, a review that went in JCI for the 100th year anniversary of insulin discovery with David Ludwig, Belinda Leonard's, and Joseph Wolfster uh, and, and other colleagues uh, putting that together. And it was an honor to be a part of that. But as a part of that, I'll never got a part of that publication was looking at the actual populator involved in the diet using objective metrics. Mm. And um, just I'll just make it succinct and say it is one of the most popular diets um, in the world. and. Mm. Because of that, the options around it for patients to manage and find, you know, alternative strategies are readily available to you. So you might not go to the grocery store and find, and actually you can now, like nowadays you can actually go to the store and find foods that fit in that category because yeah. the, the in industry has uh, realized the demand and, and started to meet it. But you can make, you know, like ketchup, pure sugar, yeah. barbecue sauce, usually pure sugar. You can recreate these really well. Now I can say like all low carb options are like as good. Yeah, um, yeah. Some are actually better. Some are definitely not as good. And some are right at the same. And one of the examples, like we at our house make a lot of ketchups and, and barbecue sauces. And when we actually started to make it ourselves, we could make it identical to mm. what was on the market. And we would just replace sugar for something like stevia or yep. agulos. And it would taste exactly the same if you did it right. Right. Not every time we weren't hitting a home run every time, but it was all like exactly the same. I'm like, whoa, like that is a ton of calories for nothing. Yeah. And it tastes exactly the same. Like, if, if, honestly, this should just be supplemented out. This would help everyone in general. Why do we even need that? Yeah. Um, it, it could help a lot of people. So those type of options are readily available to people on a regular basis to tap into. And there's so many recipe books. So, you know, Caroline Ketchum is a big advocate for the type 1 diabetes community. We use a lot of her recipes. And there's dietdoctor.com. There's so much out there uh, for recipes and options for people trying to navigate this journey. So maybe... It isn't walking to the grocery store and getting all your foods. Like nowadays, you go to the food, you, if you want to eat a high-carb diet, you go to any grocery store and you can fit that demand. Yeah. You want to eat a low-carb diet, you can do that. You just be a little more educated and then, you know, you know, reinvent foods. And you really aren't giving up anything, really, from that side of things. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, it is a, an adjustment. It is a journey, um, especially from a parent 
you know, helping a child on that journey because it usually requires a parent to kind of uh, ingratiate themselves in this approach too. Mm. Uh, it'd be weird if the child's like, well, you're not doing it and I am, you know, so a lot of For parents sure. have to own this themselves, uh, which I really admire. Yeah. Uh, I've seen some incredible parents uh, doing that and, you know, they would do anything to yeah. help their kids improve their outcomes. Uh, and so seeing that was absolutely incredible and seeing the kids, the adults, everything. At this point, it wasn't like, you know, 50 maybe 60 people there's like hundreds of people yeah showing these results and i was just like man if this is happening for these people it just everyone else everyone else doesn't know about this you know like it, it, maybe they should and then this is when the opportunity came about at usf um to to potentially do a tedx talk fit uh, in for it i was picked as one of the people and i also because of the novelty of this so we have to appreciate that when you see a type one diabetic with like, for example, my CGM, right? So if you see a type one diabetic with numbers or just like values that, you know, like if you look at CGM value and you're trying to get an idea, okay, is this, you know, they have normal blood sugars or not, et cetera. So like, for example, you know, I don't know, it's like a, like 107, pretty yeah. solid flat line. You know, that's, yeah. that's pretty normal day. It's not always perfect. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's not, but you know, that's normal for me. And that is 100% unnormal for most people. And I know what that feels like on a regular basis. So when someone taps into that and gets an opportunity, a lot of times I actually talked to a lot of physicians when they first saw what ended up being the paper that came out of studying that group because the yeah. novelty of what was being shown in so many patients, um, a lot of them were like, how do we even confirm they have type 1 diabetes? Mm. Because that's a legitimate concern. People might not believe it. Mm -hmm. And so um, it, it was fascinating because, you know, that really illustrated the whole point, you know, when you get diagnosed with a disease, you hope you can take medications that will resolve that disease to give yeah. you the power to at least control it. Yeah. And insulin certainly was the biggest discovery of all time that led to that. But advances since then have helped refine that CGMs, pumps, other insulin types, et cetera. Um, but nothing's quite given normal glycemia as an option readily to people on a, on a consistent basis. And at this point, Harvard uh, and Duke and other colleagues got together and actually studied that unique group doing doctor-confirmed data. And I might have already mentioned this before. I apologize if I'm reiterating this, but those, when they, re, so they actually caught, so the patients enrolled who were from type 1 grids for the study. And the doctors actually called their doctors to confirm nice. their results. So it wasn't like, oh, I can just report whatever I want. Like the doctors actually confirmed their lab results yeah. and illustrated, okay, in this unique cohort following this strategy, this is the outcomes we're seeing. And their average with like, I think 42 or 48% pediatric base, so half were children, um, was a 5.67 HbA1c. Realize that prediabetes starts at 5.7. Yeah. The mean of this cohort was not even prediabetic and not their values. Their average uh, blood glucose was around 100. Their standard deviation was 28 milligrams per deciliter. These are unprecedented numbers um, for a type 1 diabetic, essentially showing that normal glycemia was an option. Yeah. For it was 316. I think 300 actually reported their official results for this HbA1c. Um, in essence, it showed that in, at least if you these people were able to do it, and that opened the door because yeah. for for me seeing that it's I can say okay it works for me, you know it may work for you. Uh, it made me very tentative, and I was honestly definitely afraid to get out and publicly say you should be doing something that I personally did because I know how dangerous that gets in all walks of the research in life, you know, mm -hmm. scientifically speaking, people may, uh, it, it, it doesn't always translate like that. And seeing that cohort, I'm like, that is 300 people. Yeah. And I've done it myself. They're doing it. And that body of people who are doing this now are, are growing exponentially. 
And the physiology and biochemistry of how we know carbohydrates and insulin uh, work in the body, it's just a clear story. Carbohydrates cause a, a, a well-defined postprandial hypoglycemic response. If you don't have insulin present, insulin drops it down. The less mm. carbohydrates you put in, the less insulin you put in, the less chance you're going to have for this fluctuation, period. Yeah. Um, so it just makes sense. Andrew, how has your low-carbohydrate approach changed over the years? Has it changed at all? Like you've said that you've experimented yeah. quite a bit. Like when you delved into the low-carb approach, has that modified to where you are now? Absolutely. So I've gone through multiple iterations of this. So the one thing when I went on low-carb, my ultimate goal was never necessarily to have elevations per se in ketone bodies or yeah. to be in, in ketosis. My goal was just to have normal blood sugars. Like that's all I cared about because that had the biggest impact on my everyday life, acute quality of life. Uh, so that's how I managed it. So I was, my, originally when I first did this, the first go around I did this, I was much higher in protein. Um, and man, I was pushing like over 200 for sure grams mm -hmm. split across multiple meals. Um, and then I have, you know, this really small quantity of either broccoli, asparagus, or like spinach. Yeah. Um, and then I'd have fat kind of around the same grams of, of protein. You know, at that point I was around 250 pounds. So there's some literature saying that one gram of protein for one gram, one pound of body weight is maybe optimal for muscle you know, synthesis for athletic endeavors. So I was shooting for that. The grams of protein are about the same. And I just kept carbs uh, into the range where I was not having blood sugar glycemic problems. Mm. Um, ascribed to them. So I basically lowered my carbohydrates to optimal glycemic control, mm -hmm. um, which ended up being pretty low because uh, that just ended up working for me. But over time, my life has become very different. You know, my priorities aren't going into the gym and trying to be as big and strong as I can possibly be. It's trying to be a good dad, to be efficient at work, have my cognition at the best place possible. And eating all the time, nonstop, is cer certainly doesn't help me for a lot of those things, you know, having yeah. to rely on meals at certain times. So Actually, now my, my life is much different, you know, as a researcher, as a father uh, and, you know, making sure my priorities are aligned in an appropriate way. I often wake up nowadays and I just I have some coffee, maybe put some MTTs in it. And I'll just go until I actually I'm about two hours before I'm going to work out, which I have a home gym. So that has helped a lot uh, pre-COVID, too. So it helps a lot just with efficiency and time to be, yeah. be able to spend more time to be more efficient. And so I honestly sometimes just eat a meal before. I work out not because I actually want to, I'd rather just be able to go downstairs and immediately work out. It's because I can just tell a big difference in my ability to actually live, like, I like lifting weights. So I can yeah. actually be able to perform um, and get performance benefits and recovery benefits from that. So I'll eat pre, I'll eat uh, post, and then I'll always have usually my largest meal at the evening before bed. And the reason I do that is because if I place that early in the day, I just feel sluggish. I yeah. don't feel good. I don't feel yeah. energetic. And so if I'm going to have something like that, that's going to be more robust in calories and more dense, I guess is the way to put it. I like to have that later in the day, because if I'm going to feel, let's say a little more tired after having a bigger meal, mm. I'd rather be right before I'm about to go to bed, yeah. you know, not before I'm about to work or do other things that require me to be alert and uh, engaged. So yeah. So over the time, I'll just say that the, my timing of meals has totally changed. Yeah. Um, the frequency of meals has gone down mm -hmm. uh, and the consistency around it has also changed. So usually I have very patterned meals, uh, four to five meals on, on the dot. Mm -hmm. And that was just great for starting out because it really set a routine that I could stick with. But I also like nowadays, you know, with everything that's going on, all the changes, travel, family, like all these things. Um, it's, it's like food is not my biggest priority, yeah. you know? Um, 
it, working out is no longer my biggest priority. I just want to get them in and do yeah. a good job. So honestly, it's all over the place, but having these meals with lower glycemic impact, it's easier to kind of deal with it being placed in random spots throughout my day, mm-hmm. which I will say isn't optimal. I think macronutrient composition of the food is king mm-hmm. in glycemic control and type 1 diabetes, but I will say consistency is a strong secondary king. Yeah. Uh, and the management of type 1 diabetes, because with all the factors that change, if you have consistency, you can be more predictive yeah. uh, of what you would expect. And so while I can't necessarily rely on that consistency all the time, having foods that make it easier that if I don't necessarily get it exactly right, that I'm kind of just off the bounds deviation, mm. um, it's much more manageable. And that helps tremendously just for, because nowadays it's not about physical performance as much as cognitive performance in my uh, career and just overall life so yeah. that's why I shoot yeah no absolutely and as I think we may have mentioned with Dr Bernstein's approach he's not keto as I understand it is he no no his approach is a high protein you you have fat that comes along with it you don't really uh track that he, there's no pushing of fats mm. so to speak I guess is the way they like to describe it uh, that's not being promoted. It's not like you go eat a bunch of butter and you know bacon or any of those type of things. It's just like you eat high pro- high quality, high protein, and you have fat that comes along with that. And you just keep your carbohydrates low, and that's how you manage. And I am, uh, I, you know, I, this is an area of controversy for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that I think that that is a strong strategy if you're absent of carbohydrate and the insulin response. That having higher protein uh, for certain populations might be a benefit. Yeah. Um, to maintain that, you know, maybe if you're not worried about growth or other factors, you know, that might be a less concern and you're trying to tap into more of the, you know, ascribed benefits that might've come along with having, you know, normal nutritional uh, ketosis levels of ketone bodies, you know, somewhere between 0.5 and 5.0, somewhere around there. If you want those, you want that uh, potential benefits, uh, then you have to, pro- you definitely have to lower carbohydrates, but you probably also have to be more restrictive on the, the protein and the things. Yeah. Um, Depends on the person, but you know, yeah. for each their own. There's different journeys, different people go about it different ways. I know someone who's pure vegetarian, um, or, or actually maybe vegan. Um, she's actually very publicly acknowledges this. Her name's Carrie Douglas, an incredible human being. Mm. Um, learned a lot from her, actually. Uh, I can call her a very good friend. Mm-hmm. And she has amazing things, but she's, she does this diet purely, I think, I think she's either vegetarian or vegan. Mm. Um, which is amazing to see because a lot of times people would just never associate, okay, I want her sticking carbs. There's no way I could be a vegetarian or vegan. Well, no, she has. Yeah. And I will tell you, I've actually learned a lot of recipes from her uh, yeah, that yeah. I actually truly love and enjoy, uh, which I would have never known of if she, I had not gotten to know her. So. Yeah, nice, Andrew. And you touched upon growth when you talked about the benefit of having a higher protein approach. And as I understand it, one of the major criticisms of a low-carb approach for children and if I'm just thinking about children because of the type 1 grip group, I suppose, is that growth will be impaired if they drop the carbohydrate out. And I believe that's one of the myths, if you like, that you, or one of the notions that you discuss on your website. So are you able to talk through what those fears amongst practitioners might be with regards to the low carb approach? Yeah, so this is actually a really important topic to me personally, because mm-hmm. I had talked to a lot of people uh, in this space, and for me, it was the most commonly brought up thing. So the most commonly brought up thing was, well, what about these concerns I've heard about this diet? And usually these revolve something in another disease state or ascribed to a high-fat diet or something related to lower insulin levels. And I'll be truthful, a lot of those are 
whole totally makes sense. Mm. Uh, the concerns are, are uh, the, the main ones that typically come up are ketoacidosis, hypoglycemia risk. So ketoacidosis, because well, if you're already at risk for ketoacidosis, if you go lower insulin and lower carb, you're only going to increase that. So are you at more greater risk? You know, another common risk or concern is hypoglycemic risk. Well, if you have less carbs, won't you be at greater risk for going hypoglycemic? Another one is cardiovascular disease. Okay, well, if I'm having more fat, isn't that going to increase my cholesterol, LDL, and perpetuate my risk for, you know, long-term cardiovascular damage? There's also kidney dysfunction. You know, a lot of people who go on this diet, as we just talked about protein composition, a lot of people who go on this diet, they may feel that, okay, well, I've heard that there might be a problem with protein in kidney health. I, you know, I'm a type 1 diabetic, supposedly a higher risk for all microvascular diseases and uh, nephropathy, uh, the damage of the small vasculature within the, the kidney, wouldn't that increase my risk too? Uh, and then compliance is a concern, quality of life is a concern. Um, so the first one you talked on is pediatric growth. Uh, so it's important to actually understand, after having talked to a lot of clinics, some of which were world-class clinics and, and uh, clinicians about this, I'd realized that it was important for me to directly address this and actually like kind of systemically look at this in a very unbiased manner, yeah. because ultimately yeah. you have to weigh the benefits against the concerns. And so when we talk about, you know, pediatric growth, that's a common one because, well, there's been some literature historically that in seizure patients, a small percentage of seizure patients who go on a low-carbohydrate diet, they had, you know, reported some growth impairment compared to the mean. Mm. There was also a small case report done out of, I think, Australia, where they specifically actually asked to uh, the community, of the clinical community they knew of, Did you, have you guys ever done or heard of any adverse event with low carb? Because we're trying to report what those are. So that also came out. So there was this concern about, will this cause some type of growth deficiency because, you know, hy hypothetically, there might be a risk. When you actually look at type 1 diabetes and what is actually causing risk for pediatric growth, the number one risk factor is glycemic mismanagement. So you can actually look at risk association between glycemic mismanagement, like HbA1c and other markers, mm. and actually impaired, uh, impaired growth. Uh, so actually, the type 1 diabetes growth curve is slightly smaller than the general population, and it's been associated with glycemic mismanagement. So that's a risk. Yeah, yeah. Nutritional deficiency is another one. So when a pediatric patient actually goes on uh, this diet, oftentimes, if you aren't well informed on how to do this, you may not formulate it well with nutritional dense meals, and you may inadvertently just be calorically restricting. And yeah. nothing is a more powerful growth impairment tool over anything than caloric restriction. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. When you actually look at the literature on type 1 diabetes, a very low carbohydrate diet, the data right now, even though there is some bias and it is limit, limited in its capacity to draw extreme uh, assumptions or calculations, but what we know from the literature right now, and there have, I think, at this point been 18 separate cohorts, I think 15 or 16 different papers I'm not actually very low carbohydrate uh, at this point. I might be getting that totally wrong, but uh, I know there's around 16 to 18 actual cohorts of, yeah. of data in that group um, that... One, the glycemic uh, mismanagement obviously dramatically improves. You mm -hmm. see actually in the very low carbohydrate cohorts who have done uh, in type 1 diabetes, there's actually a large number of them that, re that outside of that pediatric paper I talked about with the 5167 HbA1c, a lot of these reports actually indicate these patients are, re are achieving non-diabetic HbA1cs. Mm -hmm. So it improves the glycemic control, which is a risk factor uh, of growth impairment in pediatrics to begin with, in type 1 diabetes uh, uh, specifically. Mm. But nutritional deficiency is more about being educated on how to go this approach and choosing it wisely. 
when you actually look at the true outcomes associated with pediatric growth and type 1 diabetes, there's totally insufficient evidence to make any uh, real claims about whether it does or doesn't. So at this point, it's totally hypothetical. Um, in fact, to my understanding, the one analysis that actually looks at the patients who are doing this approach, there was no growth impairment compared to type 1 diabetes uh, trajectory. Um, so right now, it seems like there is, it, one, it's limited evidence, but two, the evidence actually is in support of not a nutritional growth deficiency, uh, at least if you weigh according to the study's power, like to actually draw a conclusion. Yeah, because it feels like, as you said, like the, that people look to the, uh, the data on children with epilepsy who are following that classical ketogenic approach where it's matched four to one fat to carbon protein. And as I understand it, that's where some of these concerns come from, as you said, with, with uh, children who have seizures, right? So it's almost like conflating that problem onto this particular group just because they're children. Yes. And that is exactly what's happening, but it isn't completely unfair, right? If you have mm. limited data, you have to look at the limited data that is there. Absolutely. Um, and so that, that is what people have done. So that's why I say when people make this jump to say, well, hold on, won't it cause pediatric growth impairment? Uh, it's not off the range to say, well, hold on, there's data in these other populations where that might be the case if we don't have it in this one. Yeah. But right now we do at least have some preliminary data in this one indicating that these, you know, N of six case reports, but were specifically, that study specifically actually asked only for those patients who had a problem. Yeah. So that report is only illustrating when someone actually actually fit that criteria. So by, by default, it fit that criteria. But when you look at the pediatric paper, those children didn't see growth impairment. Yeah. So um, and that's a much larger uh, cohort of N value. And they were actually ascribed to this very specific regimen where you actually do see the glycemic management improvements, et cetera. And typically that group is more educated uh, on how to get a nutritionally dense low-carbohydrate based diet. So um, obviously there's more questions to be answered there from a research perspective, for sure. But it, the evidence right now does not support that that is actually founded based on the evidence at this point. Yeah. And so that's growth. Um, what about the hypoglycemia? Yeah. So hypoglycemia is always one of the biggest concerns because it's really the acute concern, right? So when someone has type 1 diabetes, often they live in hypoglycemia because it had this large variation around the mean. And so if you keep lowering your mean with this large, you know, variance, at some point, your lower end of the variance is going to start creeping into hypoglycemia. And then it, 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 if you get too low, it can be very fatal, right? So um, the concern around that is, well, if you're having less carbohydrates, which help elevate blood sugar, won't you increase your risk of going low blood sugar? Mm. Well, the truth is that most hypoglycemic events are a sequel to what was previously a hyperglycemic event. Yeah. So if you're hyperglycemic, you usually take a bolus of insulin to correct for it. And oftentimes that might be an over, not often, but it can be an overcorrection. And that's when usually you see hypoglycemic moments. Mm. Um, but if you actually look at the data at what is actually a risk factor in type 1 diabetes, specific, uh, type 1 diabetes specifically for hypoglycemia, HbA1c, a high HbA1c is a risk factor for hypoglycemia. And glycemic mismanagement in general is another risk factor. We know that the literature right now in type 1 diabetes and a very low carbohydrate diet, the HbA1c comes down and oftentimes, sometimes is the non-diabetic range. Mm. And we also see a, a, a dramatic reduction in the reports where they reported it for reductions in blood glucose standard deviation, meaning the, the variance around the average is much lower, meaning you're protected from these wide swings that put you at risk for hyperglycemia. And there actually is some real data uh, to indicate that at least... A, 
compared to the historical evidence in type 1 diabetes risk that the hypoglycemic episodes happen at a much lower incidence uh, in those doing this diet than the general type 1 diabetes population. So that's worth noting. There are some limitations around that because obviously if you're in a study and you're specifically doing a dietary strategy in the study, you might have improvements by default by being in the study. So there's a limitation there. But the, the, the difference is multifold. So the difference is multifold less chance of that occurring. But we do actually have some data on that. It's very limited, but we do have it. So the actual concern around it, again, doesn't seem to match what the evidence on type 1 diabetes and very low carbohydrate illustrates or the risk factors associated with it. Yeah. And it makes sense, right? Because if you reduce the variance, you're, I mean, that's the major concern. So yeah, absolutely makes sense. Now, Andrew, what about um, ketoacidosis? Yeah, so the this concern just fundamentally comes from basic biology. So yeah. if in type one diabetes, being the absence of insulin, insulin does a very good job of blunting the hepatic uh, ketogenesis. So insulin at high levels can cause hepatic um, uh, ketone levels or ketogenesis in general as a process for the production of ketones from free fatty acids uh, to lower. Um, so when you have a lot of insulin on board, you can blunt that process. This is also why when you go to a low carbohydrate or fasting diet, when insulin comes down a lot, you can actually start seeing ketone production increase meaningfully by serum blood markers. So in ketoacidosis, in type 1 diabetes, when you don't have insulin, you ultimately start increasing the amount of lipolysis from the fatty acids that those free fatty acids then go to hepatic tissue, your liver mm -hmm. and the liver with in the absence of insulin blocking the ketogenic uh, uh, pathway allows for ketone bodies to be produced. That's mm -hmm. a very normal physiological mechanism. Well, ketoacidosis occurs in type one diabetes because of the overwhelming lack or absence of insulin on board. So usually when you see ketoacidosis in a patient, their blood sugar levels is typically over 250 milligrams per deciliter. That's because there's a complete absence of insulin to manage it. You also see ketone bodies typically um, above five, although there is some reports that there's risk for it as low as three to five. Mm -hmm. um, and the true risk factors, so it's a completely different physiological state of what is nutritional ketosis versus ketoacidosis. And it comes down to just the pure absence of insulin and type of diabetes. But again, if you look at the hard evidence, so what are the true ascribed risk factors for ketoacidosis and type 1 diabetes? Number one, above everything, and it comes back to this, is HbA1c. Mm. A high HbA1c actually increases your risk for ketoacidotic events. So higher HbA1c, higher incidence numbers for ketoacidosis. And again, this comes back to glycemic mismanagement. Uh, so HbA1c and glycemic mismanagement are your primary risk factors for ketoacidosis and type 1 diabetes. And as we've already talked about for hypoglycemia and pediatric growth, we know that when type 1 diabetes and a very low carbohydrate diet, that these both reliably improve, mm. um, again, to really extreme levels, which again, lower those risk factors. And just like hypoglycemic episodes, we actually see a lower incidence of this uh, DKA events in the type 1 diabetes community who do very low carbohydrate. Again, just like hypoglycemia, the data is much more limited, but it's limited data. It's what we got. Yeah. So based on that evidence, we see lower incidence of these severe adverse events, but it does make a lot of sense. If you have greater glycemic control, you would expect a lot of these things to improve when almost all of them are at risk because of glycemic mismanagement to begin with. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting because that was, as a clinician who uses low carb, that's a lot of the pushback that you get from doctors of patients, clients would come to see me 
and they have type 1 diabetes and they themselves want to follow a lower carb approach and they're like my doctor is totally against it because of diabetic ketoacidosis and I'm going to the other one which I know that we can talk about is the risk of cardiovascular disease there's such a fear around this stuff and, and, and again you know I, I have to give credit and, and be fair it does make sense that there would be a fear if you're you know I heard a great quote recently um, often people the, the philosophy of do no harm first yeah often comes at the expense of actually doing some good and oftentimes doing some really good Mm. Uh, exponentially, you do you do exponential good, but if you're potentially going to do any harm, uh, a lot of people will go for do no harm first before they even consider how much good could be done, even at risk for that potential harm. So, yeah. um, I understand that, but that's okay because we actually have data to look at to compare these things. And so, when it comes to cardiovascular disease, so we can actually—that's you know—in part why I made that website so that people can actually go and look at the evidence revolving these things and make their own decisions because mm. these are tough decisions, and I think it's important to consider them uh, in the big picture altogether. So, for cardiovascular disease, there was a paper in 2016 uh, published in uh, I think a diabetics diabetes care an ADA journal, um, looking at the hazard ratios uh, that were accompanied the DCC and EDIC trial. And a DCC and EDIC trial—we already talked about that earlier. Uh, in this podcast, but that was the biggest trial ever done, 30 years, over 1,400 patients with type 1 diabetes. And they looked at risk ratios or hazard ratios for those, um, for various biomarkers uh, of revolving cardiovascular disease. And amazingly, uh, but also not surprisingly, HbA1c came in first. So HbA1c uh, was one of the most important risk factors for cardiovascular disease. But what was highly ironic is that the hazard ratios for total cholesterol, LDL, and HDL were essentially meaningless. So the hazard ratio for total cholesterol was like 1.008 to 1.018. So basically one. So the the risk ratio associated with any change in uh, total cholesterol was essentially one. So nothing. And then LDL cholesterol was 1.008 to 1.072, I believe. Again, right at one. And HDL was 0.976 to 0.995. So that was, again, all right at once. So they seemed rather meaningless. But if you look at triglycerides, triglycerides has a ratio was like 1.554 range to somewhere mm. around 2.923. And what's interesting about that is that carbohydrates typically drive up triglycerides and lower carbohydrates typically drop them. And there's all this concern about the idea that total cholesterol HDL uh, or total cholesterol and LDL will go in an adverse direction because of the, the data around the general population that those two biomarkers are ascribed to cardiovascular risk. But in type 1 diabetes, according to at least this most recent analysis and the largest data set ever conducted in type 1 diabetes looking at cardiovascular disease and the rap, uh, hazard ratio ascribed to them, those two biomarkers, total cholesterol and LDL, appear to be meaningless. Mm. And HbA1c appears to be king as per usual. And then triglycerides seems to be much more important than either of those other two um, lipid values. But it's important to also realize when you actually look at the literature on these dietary strategies and what actually happens with them on type 1 diabetes and very low carbohydrate, as mentioned, HbA1c improves. Triglycerides often come down, but not, well, not, not in every report, actually. Yeah. Um, insulin load also lowers. There's been some uh, recent evidence growing, not in type 1 diabetes per se, but in other diseases that insulin load can contribute to macrovascular disease, so um, which is cardiovascular disease. And that obviously typically lowers, sometimes uh, to about a, a half or a third of the traditional normal value, I guess based on normal means. Um, let's say body weight, if that was a risk factor, that 
tends to go all over the place depending on what report you're looking at and what the intervention was. So hard to really make any conclusions there. Mm. Ironically, if you look at all the evidence in very low carbohydrate, total cholesterol when going on this intervention typically goes down. Mm. And that may go against all traditional logic on this yeah. approach, but actually the directional change, now it is elevated above 200, but the directional change from pre-intervention to post-intervention is actually lower. Yeah. And when you look at LDL cholesterol, it's again, all over the map. It goes down, it goes, uh, it goes up, it can stay the same. And then HDL, kind of like total cholesterol, it's very consistently goes up and proves. Uh, but the evidence associated with these in the context of type 1 diabetes and very low carbohydrate for actual outcomes in cardiovascular disease, we don't really have any evidence, mm. right? So we have to look at these hazard ratios, these risk factors, and then how those risk factors actually change on the diet based on the evidence. And right now, they seem to, the ones that matter the most, you know, HbA1c, tri triglycerides, and insulin load, those are um, some of the most reliably improved on this dietary approach, not even in type 1 diabetes, but actually across general population type 2 and beyond. So. Yeah, it's so interesting. And one of the other things that you mentioned was the effect of this type of diet on the kidneys. So that theory came out, I think it was from Brownlee or Brownwell, I forget the, I think it was Brownlee is the official name of the author, um, who put out a hypothesis paper back in the day that the concept that kidneys, that protein, you know, the kidneys have to filter protein if you increase the protein com, you know, content and the diet or percentage or the amount of absolute intake of protein that you'll further stress the kidneys. And that was a hypothesis paper. And ever since then, there's been a growing level of concern associated with it. And also supported by the idea that if you actually have kidney disease, that excess protein intake can exaggerate the disease. Mm. But there was recently a meta-analysis, and this is not in type 1 diabetes, mm -hmm. um, but it's in the general population, where this theory originated from, actually demonstrating that higher protein intake does not drive kidney change or dysfunction at all. Um, and that that was kind of a hypothesis that never really maturated. Now, this obviously does change when you get into the context of actual kidney disease. But prior to the onset of kidney disease, there is insufficient evidence for it actually driving that, at least in the general population. But let's you know, consider just specific to type 1 diabetes. So this idea that um, there might be a risk for kidney disease, well, the, again, Back to what we've been talking about, the primary risk factor is HbA1c. Yeah. So if you can improve HbA1c, in theory, you would reduce the risk factor ascribed to kidney disease. And there's just insufficient evidence right now that protein intake drives, exaggerates, or reduces kidney dysfunction in the context of type 1 diabetes. So it's hard to make any assumptions there. And the reality is that you can change your protein intake ad libitum so to your desire mm. on the support have to have high low or you can choose what you want so you can you know if you're concerned about that, you don't have to have high protein it's a choice yeah um on top of that and again at the end of the day we don't know how this diet in the context of type 1 diabetes with actual clinical outcomes meaningfully changes insufficient evidence so we have to look at these risk factors and the risk factor outcomes uh ascribed to the diet yeah no that's awesome thank you andrew and you know the last one but you always hear actually with any kind of lower carb approach type 1 diabetes or otherwise is well no one can adhere to that so what do you have to say about that well you know dietary compliance has been a concern of the general population for forever mm -hmm. right so if you could get everyone to comply with a diet you would have solved all of if not most of the major problems uh, across the world right now and so that's just an inherent problem across our general population. You know, mm. over 70% of America at this point is overweight. I think Europe, uh, last numbers I saw were over 50%. So if you consider that, you know, we know diet's a huge part of that. If you could correct the diet altogether and get people to actually meaningfully comply with interventions like this, then you probably could 
just fix all the problems, you know? Uh, but it, so, it, so there's been a lot of literature that we put someone on an actual diet that they have a hard time complying with it. And the true reality is that that is not to any one diet. That is to all diets. So it isn't specific to this dietary strategy. It's just in general. And at this point, there's insufficient evidence. Well, so, so anytime you increase restriction in a diet, you can, it might be more uh, difficult uh, to actually comply with it at the end of the day. But we actually don't have any evidence right now that indicates that people have a hard time complying with this diet and type 1 diabetes. It's one of those things that hasn't been studied. We don't have the evidence for it right now. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's very similar to the general population where there's always going to be people who have a hard time changing lifestyle, not yeah. specifically diet, not specifically eating any one diet, but just an intervention that requires some real effort up front to, to comply with. But here's something I will say and why I think, you know, this is an interesting topic. A lot of times people think about this in type 1 diabetes and think, well, it's just going to be like the general population that won't comply. Mm. But when you have type 1 diabetes and you eat a meal, you get pretty quick feedback on how that meal acutely affects your, your quality of life. You go hyperglycemic, you go hyperglycemic. There's that real rapid, quick biochemical feedback that tells you whether you, you got it right or you got it wrong. Mm. And so that gets to the things like quality of life. You know, when someone's on, let's say, a roller coaster ride throughout most of their life, up and down on blood sugars all the time to extreme fluctuations that most people will never appreciate uh, the level of impact that can have on quality of life. When you actually look at risk factors for quality of life, it's very multifactorial. But one of the primary risk factors ascribed to worsen quality of life in type 1 diabetes is HbA1c increasing and yeah. complications as well. And if you can lower HbA1c, um, there's in theory an ability to improve some of the primary problems associated with quality of life. And we also know that complications, the only data we have right now is on uh, DKA coma hospitalizations, and those all seem to decrease based on the limited evidence we have with this approach. Yeah. Um, there's also been actual hard evidence to say that there is a subjective improvement in quality of life in these patients who are doing this diet. And that might fundamentally come down to the fact that they aren't experiencing these rapid fluctuations that we knew deteriorate quality of life, but they are also maybe more empowered because you're a disease where you uh, oftentimes you can talk to a patient who might be struggling with this and they feel kind of like they're out of control mm. uh, sometimes um, with it. And this really puts some control in people's hands, at least based on what the evidence says right now and based on a lot of people I've seen and also my personal experience. So um, it just illustrates hope. You know, a lot of the common concerns described this diet, ketoacidosis, hyperglycemic risk, pediatric growth impairment, cardiovascular disease, you know, kidney disease compliance, quality of life beyond. When you think of all those together, you know, Usually the concerns are the things that are first thought of, but we have to really appreciate that at the foundation of this disease, we have an absolute absence of beta cell function and insulin production. And that means that we have glycemic, uh, we have to manually regulate our insulin control. And if we can improve our ability to manage that on a more meaningful basis, we are in essence doing our best to control the disease or what is induced in us to the disease that induces a lack of glycemic control and mm. through insulin uh, lack of production. Um, either way, what I'm trying to say is that if we can do something about that, it, it empowers a patient. And yeah. if you can empower a patient, you know, that's a, that's very meaningful. I mean, you hear stories all the time, you go on YouTube, you can find millions of stories about someone who did something meaningful in their life uh, and it totally changed their life and outcomes. And they, they want to tell everyone about it because they want to share those um, stories. And as a fact, well, you know, if you have a disease that affects your everyday quality of life, the nutrition you're eating and the lifestyle you're having, if you can meaningfully change that by doing something as simple as a carbohydrate, low carbohydrate diet and just changing your insulin, which typically lowers the price of them and the amount of insulin you have to even take, um, it's just something that I think 
illustrates a lot of hope. Yeah. Um, and I hope one day, one will have way more robust evidence around all these things. So there will be lack of hesitation to begin with. That's number one. But number two, that a patient will be able to walk in and know that there's an option on the table for them to achieve normal glycemia um, if they do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And, you know, without that, you're using the tools that we currently have. And the, the hard truth is that those do not normalize HbA1c. There's no current tool right now in type 1 diabetes that has shown the, the level of ability to reduce HbA1c, the same level these low-carbohydrate diets have in the literature. Nothing compares to it. Mm. I will also illustrate that the data is limited. You know, it is very limited at this stage. We don't have randomized long-term RCTs to really pull from and say yes or no to this. And that's what most people want to see. They want to see these gold standard RCTs. That's typical clinical outcome uh, expectations. We don't have that right now, but we do have some very interesting uh, reports that illustrate that it's possible. Mm. And possible is something we need to consider right now because we don't have anything else yeah. that can do it. Yeah. So um, that's where we sit right now. Uh, in this community. And I'm hopeful that we'll learn more and figure out more. I mean, look, if I find out tomorrow, this is not the best way to do it, then I, I want to be actionable on that. But yeah. right now, based on what we know, the risk factors and the benefits that are described to this, this seems like a very, for me personally, it's a choice I, I decided to make because one, it just subjectively improves my quality of life on a day in and a day out basis. But even beyond that, if you have hard objective biomarkers, they also seem to all move in the right direction. And the most yeah. important of them, on a hierarchy-based system are the ones that are most effective, HbA1c and beyond. So. Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. And I feel I was going to ask you, what, what do you think it would take for this to be, I suppose, adopted as one of the major approaches taken by physicians? But you've said it, you know, it's that long-term data, it's that randomized clinical trial, which might not necessarily be, maybe it's kind of in the mix and it's occurring, but it's not there right now. That's what I love about your website is that it is fully referenced with those peer-reviewed studies it's a great resource that potentially someone could take to their doctor and say look could you just check this out I'm really interested in this and I I want to I'm like try this approach just to help their doctor as well because these are very because it must be difficult as a physician to keep up to date with everything that you need to keep up to date with I think yeah I mean I, I think the that was the first time, but one of the biggest discussions revolving low carbohydrate that really, you know, took hold of the ADA conference was like two years ago. Mm. Um, so the conversation is obviously happening. When the pediatric paper came out, I believe the New York Times article that accompanied it and talked about it was the most clicked and commented article for New York Times for 2018. Amazing. So obviously there's a ton of interest uh, in this and there's a lot of passion in this community. And I think that passion just fundamentally comes down to the lived experience. When you know what it feels like, you know what you can do about it. You get very, you know, there's a lot of people who are very, very passionate about wanting to share that um, for those who may not be aware. Mm -hmm. um, and that can be very passion oriented. Uh, and I get it. Like, I totally get it. And there's been some extreme stories of like, you know, people going to places and just being told you should never do that, you know. It, I, well, I don't want to go down the road because that's not everyone, right? You don't want to paint one case or two cases as the picture. Uh, that's certainly not the case here. No. Um, I think if there was, so here you asked a question though, like what would it take for this to actually be adopted? And I think we're in a state now where I think there's a growing level of appreciation because of all the data on type two at this point. Um, and now the growing evidence in type one, uh, because in the absence of anything else, that this is something we shouldn't just 
whisk away and say, we shouldn't do that for all these ascribed hypothetical risks. At this point, I think there's a growing level of appreciation for, yeah, if it works for you, you know, um, but what would it cause it for someone to go into an actual clinic and every single person to be able to walk out of that uh, and probably be aware of it? Well, just like a drug. Mm. So if a drug wants to make it into a doctor's office to be prescribable to their patients, most doctors know all about drugs, mm. right? So, and they know what all, usually know all the array of things that can be offered to a patient. If you want to match that, you got to do a long-term RCT. Mm-hmm. Do you actually need that for someone to do this approach and have meaningful outcomes? No, mm. not at all. Uh, and many people make a strong argument that's literally the re- that's being used as a unfortunate um, goalpost before people will actually consider it. And right now, the problem is that I live with type 1 diabetes right now, the second I get off this podcast and for the rest of my life. Yeah. The likelihood that insulin is going to match carbohydrates probably isn't happening anytime soon. And if it did, it would be very dangerous because it'd be so rapid that it would probably induce much more severe, severe adverse events. Yeah. The likelihood that the technologies being utilized to cure type 1 diabetes is just something that I have observed over the last 15 years and also talked to some of the best beta cell biologists in the world, and they are not encouraging. Yeah. Uh, many have said, you know, I'm not getting in my decade. And I'm, I, might not, I might not see it in my life. Yeah. And I hope they're all wrong for the record. Uh, I hope they're all wrong. But because of all those facets, and this is the one intervention that the evidence right now ascribes that someone could just go do it mm. right now Mm-mm. with this disease and correct a lot of the common risk factors associated with this diet, not only for acute complications, but chronic complications. I think that this is something that deserves that level of investment and effort to get that type of intervention out there to test it so that there is that question is no longer there. Yeah. At the end of the day, is it needed? No, I don't think it's at all needed. I've done it without it being there for the last 15 years, but will it always be an expectation and goalpost until it's until that, that, you know, until we go through it, will it always be there? Probably. Yeah. So that's something that I, let me put it this way. If anyone is uh, interested in trying to overcome that problem, they can contact me personally because I've been trying to address that problem for the last year and a half. Yeah. So um, well, I'm hopeful. I'll put it that way. Okay. Um, but we will see uh, because I'm fully aware that that is an expectation and something that I think uh, could be addressed at a scalable level um, such that, well, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Awesome, Andrew. And do you know what I love? Um, your passion is absolutely obvious for this and um, understandable. You've also, what I absolutely love is that you absolutely caveat everything with that science mind, with that researcher mind, with that, with the mind that you're not just someone out there saying, this worked for me, this will work for everyone. And, and I think that's what makes, I, I suppose, your message uh, probably so much more powerful because people can you know, you've, you've, you wear a number of hats, I suppose, or at least two when you're standing here talking to me about type 1 diabetes because it's your lived experience, yet you know the research, you've been involved in, in writing publications, you've got a real interest in that, but also understand why that's important. And I think that's what makes your message so powerful. I, well, Maggie, I, I, I'm honoured you say that. I truly appreciate that. I, I feel a little bit of a responsibility as someone who's kind of gone down the path of researching nutritional strategies for actual interventions and having gone through this myself 
and being aware of what comes along with that on a daily basis to try and do something with that. But I've also gone through a lot of experiences just through the inherent PhD process where things that I fundamentally thought were absolute facts. Five, 10 years later, or when I became knowledgeable enough, I realized I was totally ignorant. Yeah. And I was completely wrong. Having your fundamental established beliefs be objectively wrong, and that has happened to me multiple times over the last 15 years, is something that if you just re- accept the reality that, that happens, then you have to appreciate that some of the stuff you know I might be saying here today may not last throughout my generation throughout the test of time. Maybe something I'm saying here might not hold up to the science we end up learning about. I'm just speaking about what we know at this point. Yeah. You know, but maybe at some point it might not. So it it deserves that level of caveat. And I've also seen the dangers of over speaking what the science says. Yeah. And I I try to be very careful about that, not to fall into that camp because it's it's something that frustrates me and other topics and other areas. So I want to be careful about that. So, you know, if I overspoke at any point here, I definitely want to apologize. I hope not to. Um, but I, I do fundamentally believe that it's worth stating. I don't think I'm speaking out of bounds when I say that the evidence right now fundamentally shows that there is no current therapy for type 1 diabetes that will allow you to get normal glycemia on average in the population. It's not there. Yeah. Um, we know insulins don't match carbohydrate response reliably. We know a cure is probably not coming for a decade, if not my entire lifetime. We also know the evidence illustrates on a very low carbohydrate diet with the limited evidence we currently have, that it is and might be the most powerful therapeutic tool if implemented the way the therapy has been shown to be implemented in the literature. With that all combined, and also considering the concerns, the real risk factors associated with the concerns, and the actual outcomes in those biomarkers, in the very low carbohydrate diet and type 1 IBs, I am very hopeful. Mm. I am very hopeful that this is something that might be able to help many, many patients. Uh, hopefully, there'll be something way better than this that comes along. Uh, but I'm trying to address something for the lived patient right now. I'm not expecting something to come along and magically fix everything for everyone. I know this is something that many people will live with for the rest of their life. And there needs to be something that allows them to achieve this normal glycemia if they so choose to. And for that, that's why I'm here speaking today, so that someone will at least be aware of something that will give them the opportunity to be able to achieve that. They do it, they hate it, they don't want it, by all means. You know, if they don't even want to try it, by all means. But if they do, and they didn't know about it, to me, that's unacceptable. And so I'm hopeful that that won't be the case for many people going forward, and we'll have better evidence to go forward to support that as well. Andrew, you definitely didn't overstate anything, and I just have to thank you so much for your time today because you and of course yesterday because this was a bit of a part two for us um yeah I, I really do feel like that if even if you get like a few people who weren't aware now aware then what a win that is and, and I feel like that's just that increased awareness in the space um is what we can hope for at this point in time really yeah truly I, I agree with you and then I, I'm hopeful that the remaining pieces will uh I'll put it this way. There are many pieces to help push a lot of what I said is the gaps move forward. Um, they're being actively worked on. So we'll see if we can never pull a lot of that awesome. off to help on a grander scale, but we'll see. That would be amazing. Andrew, thank you so much. So now where can people find you? Are you on social media or are you kind of fly uh, under the radar? Uh, I try to do both uh, if that's possible. I try to do a lot yeah. more of the second yeah. than the first. 
Um, I try to spend as little time as I can on there, although I understand there's extreme power and ability to reach people and have an impact. Um, so I do have a Twitter. I do have a Facebook that I very infrequently uh, get to. Um, I maybe check Twitter less than 15 minutes a day, max, like honestly. And But I do have a website that I do put information out there whenever I can. Um, but my more active engagement occurs through probably Twitter. If I, there's anything worth meaningfully put out in there or touching base with anyone, um, I typically, that's one avenue to do so. And the website is another way where I try to put out information that's just helpful for people for free. So if that uh, if they're looking in or interested in that, just andykutnik.com. Uh, I wasn't creative enough to come up with anything else. So that's where it is, just my name.com. I figured that was easy. So, um, yeah. It was certainly easy for me to find to reach out to you. So. Andrew, thank you so much for your time and um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Alrighty, team. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed chatting to Andrew. He's like super approachable. So if you have any questions, I know that he's more than happy for you to reach out to him. Next week on the podcast, I sit down with my mate, Dr. Karen Zinn. Those of you who are interested in low-carbohydrate will uh, know Karen very well. She is the co-author of the book series, What the Fat. She's an advocate for low-carbohydrate diets for health, performance, and weight loss. And she is a senior lecturer at AUT University. And Karen and I got a bunch of questions from her Facebook audience, and we discussed that next week so a bit of a Q&A sort of one of those fun ones I love doing things like that so look out for that next week and until then you can catch me on Instagram at Mickey Willardin or over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition or my website MickeyWillardin.com which is where you get access to all of what I described at the start of the podcast and also if you even just signed up you would be able to get my weekly emails which are always good and also book a one-on-one consultation there. Alright team, hope you have a great week, talk to you next week, see you later.